Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them up to Acts chapter 1. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and we'll make our way through uh, verse 26. This is God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Jesus' brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and a lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we see even here before your spirit was poured out in a greater measure on your disciples, your spirit was at work even in the heart of Peter, giving him understanding into the words that your spirit wrote through men in the Old Testament like David. And so, Father, we come this morning asking for your spirit to do a mighty work, to enable my preaching. May it be accurate. May it be genuine. May it be for the good of Christ and the good of your church. May it build us up. May it strengthen our faith. May it show us how you would have us to live in light of all that you have accomplished for us on the cross. Would you do this uh, through your servant, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I've entitled our time today, Avoiding the Great Omission. Have you ever forgot something that was actually important and essential 
to the very thing you set out to do. Des Bryant is a receiver in the NFL, wide receiver, and he finished his career with Oklahoma State. And uh, Des Bryant actually showed up at his NFL Pro Day. Now, here's, here's what a Pro Day is. It is the day where if you're going into the NFL, it's when you go out and you compete on the field. You show your strength. You show your speed. You show your agility. You show your accuracy if you're a quarterback. And it's with all the scouts watching. And that's going to affect you. It's going to affect your draft order. It's going to affect how much money you make. So it's a really big day. And so if you're coming out of college, your pro day is probably the biggest day thus far in your potential NFL career. Des Bryant showed up for his NFL pro day and his cleats did not. And so he had to compete with brand new shoes that had not been broken in. And you can imagine how that goes. His 40-yard dash time was slower. He was slipping as he was running routes. He omitted something that was vital to the very thing that he set out to do. And in case you're a Buffalo Bills fan, they had sort of a a very similar experience back in 1992. Had a Hall of Fame running back, a guy by the name of Thurman Thomas. And he's the captain of the team. He's the first NFL running back to lead the NFL four years in a row from yards from line of scrimmage. He's the captain, and it's in the Super Bowl. And he goes out, and there's a coin toss. He goes back to the, to the, to the sideline, and, and guess what? He, he, he can't start the game because he forgot his helmet. It's a great omission. He's there to play football. He's there to compete. He's there to win a Super Bowl. And he forgot something that was vital to what he needed on the field. Have you ever forgotten something important? Last week, Jesus left the disciples with a glorious mission. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will proclaim the name of Christ to all people in all places in this present age, despite persecution. And that's going to happen in the next chapter. In the very next chapter, Holy Spirit is poured out and 3,000 people are converted on the, the, in the next chapter. But did you notice that between what he said, what was going to happen, and what actually happened, the pouring out of the Spirit, sandwiched right in the middle of that is our passage this morning. In other words, Before Jesus sends them out to be his witnesses, before they proclaim the good news in power, before they go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, bearing witness, before they go out, Jesus sends them up. Go back to Jerusalem and go into that upper room. That's his way of saying, as you think about mission and being on mission, 
There's something else that needs to happen before. Before you go out, before you go and be my witnesses, I want you to go back. Go back to that room. I think this is a mild corrective. You see, I want the growth of God's church. I want the growth of this local expression of it. We want this church to be a place where people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language and background, we, we want this to be a place where we gather to worship. We want our body of Christ to be a body where people from all walks of life will be here. And maybe you found yourselves worrying about this elusive dream. Can this be real? My assumption is that no one in this room takes delight in anyone spending eternity apart from Jesus. Jesus says, fear not the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast thy soul into hell. My assumption is that when you look at non-believers, your hearts break and they ache because the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's under a field, which means that the kingdom of heaven is literally right under their nose and, and, and the God of this world has blinded them that they cannot see that my assumption is that if you're in this room, then your heart breaks when you see something so precious and yet something so ignored And so Jesus would say that there is joy in all of heaven when one sinner repents. And so what do you think happens in the next chapter of Acts when 3,000 souls bow the knee? That there is a party going on in heaven because people have been transferred from darkness to his marvelous light. That my assumption is that we want that. My other assumption is that we want to see the name of Jesus famous everywhere, that we understand the beginning of time that through Adam and Eve bearing children, being fruitful and multiplying across the face of the earth, that the earth will be full of worshipers of God. And God comes to Abraham and says, through you, the world will be blessed. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh. He sends Daniel into Babylon and says, seek the welfare and the good of that city. That my, the prophets preach of a day when the nations will bow the knee. And so I, I think we're right to want beautiful diversity because it showcases the beautiful diversity in our Godhead. It showcases the image of God marked upon humans from different ethnicities and classes and walks of life. And we're better Christians when we encounter his beautiful diversity. My assumption is that we want that. We want what's happening in Acts 2. And here's the great omission. We can want Acts 2 while leaving behind the priority of the church and the practices of the church. We can want what Acts 2 is bringing without seeing that before Jesus sends them out, 
He sends them back to an upper room to wait and to tarry together and to be together. Before he sends them out to do, he sends them to a place to belong. And I think that's important. Trying to be missional without being tethered to the body trying to be missional without practicing these disciplines, that's not Jesus' design. He says, you come in, and you be known, and you do life, and then you go out. So what I want to do this morning is look at two points. I want to convince you that Jesus is giving us a priority here, and that priority is the church, and the church is God's new community. And then I want to look at some of the beautiful and foundational practices of the church. Let's look at the first point. This room is significant. It says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. We don't know if this is the same room that where they were uh, prior to Jesus' um, ascension. We, we don't know, but we do know that Jesus sent them back, and they went to a room. And this room, in my mind, is a significant place because the church of God is birthed right here. This new community is the culmination of God's promises, his sovereignty. It is the crown jewel of Christ's work. And I love how Luke gives a few nods to Jewish culture, just so that Jews perhaps reading this would not misread and think that God had disregarded them, but that he was actually keeping his word that through you, through you Jewish people, I will build my church and that church will include Jews and Gentiles alike. But I love how there are a few nods that any Jew reading this would have picked on. The first one is how Luke describes the distance they traveled. So notice it says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. I'm in verse 12 which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day, day's journey away. Now, it, it's easy to read that and think that what Luke is saying is they're traveling on the Sabbath day, but that's not what it says. It's a Sabbath day journey or a Sabbath day's journey. What, what is that? It's the distance a devout Jew would travel on the Sabbath. And it, it equates to roughly three-fourths of a mile. So if it was Sabbath day and you didn't want to, quote, break the Sabbath, then you would wear your Fitbit and make sure that you didn't get more steps than three-fourths of a mile. Now, this is, it's extra biblical, meaning that you won't find that restriction in the Bible. But here is what one scholar says. This expression comes out of rabbinical usage to indicate the distance a Jew might travel without transgressing the law. We don't know when this assumption in regard to the Sabbath day journey was made, but it was obviously in force during the time of Christ. So if a Jew were reading this, they would actually know 
that from wherever Jesus ascended to wherever room they sent him to, we're going to use your vernacular. It's three-fourths of a mile or under. The other cultural thing present here is, is how Luke gives us that, 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 those, that, those brackets there where, where in verse 15 he talks about the company of persons was in all about 120. That do, why do you think Luke is doing it? It could be because what he's doing here is comparing the size of this small gathering to the 3,000 that will gather later in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And what Luke is doing is showing us the multiplication of the church. It could be that, but, but sometimes in the Bible, numbers mean more than, than, than that. Not always, y'all. So don't go around here thinking every time you see this or this, that there's some mysterious thing going on. No, not always. But there are instances in which numbers do mean something else. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, and that's when Paul is, is vindicating or talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ. He says, I deliver to you that which was of first importance, that Jesus Christ died and he died for our sins. And this was in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and this was according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are all alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the other apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. So when you see that number 500 brothers, our temptation is to read right past it. But if you were in Corinth, you knew exactly what Paul was doing. You see, Athens is 64 miles from Corinth, and we have record that in Athens, high-profile cases required 500 jurors. And so what Paul is really saying, if you want to take the resurrection of Jesus to court, in your own cultures, in your own laws, in your own practices, God is so sovereign and big that he made his son show himself to 500 people. So if you want to take the resurrection to court, I can bring you enough witnesses. So the question becomes, what's with the 120? Why does Luke put that there? Here's what one scholar says. There is cultural significance to the 120. In the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the law, Jewish law required 120 men to establish a new community with its own council to oversee it. In Jewish terms, these disciples were a body sufficient enough in size to form a new community. That's Luke's way of saying a new community by Jewish standards is born right there in that room. And it is on these 120 Christians in Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit comes 
like a mighty rushing wind in the next chapter. And this should take our minds back to Ezekiel. When Ezekiel sees the valley of dry bones, and he's asking, can these bones live again? And the Lord himself says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath that these bones may live. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that, is, that Luke uses for wind is the word that appears in Genesis for the life-giving breath of the Spirit of God. And the word for breath in Ezekiel is identical to the word that Luke uses for the Holy Spirit. It is likely that Luke is trying to communicate to his readers that the day of Israel's prophesied restoration has dawned. And what God is doing right here in these chapters in Acts is making the dry bones of Israel live again. He's about to breathe into them and they are about to become a new and beautiful community. Only that community is not just physical Israel. It's making way for the church. The church Did you notice that they asked Jesus in the last section, are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know whose name was changed to Israel? Jacob. You know how many sons Jacob had? And how they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And if Jesus is really making a new community, the church, if he himself is about to not just breathe into them where they become living people, but pour out his spirit, where they will be indwelled by his spirit and will be this new, beautiful community, the church. And if he's using that analogy from the Old Testament, then how many apostles do you think Jesus is going to start this new community with? It's going to be 12. And there's a problem because in this room it's only 11. Because Judas betrayed Jesus. And what Peter does as he's led by the Spirit, he says, I see it. That Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which were Psalms of David, David writes about those whom he loved. They rejected him. He writes about those whom he loved, mocked him. He writes about those giving him sour wine to drink. He's writing about all of those who treated him unjustly and betrayed him. He's writing about the zeal of the house of the Lord that consumed him. And then he's writing about being betrayed by his friend. And Peter sees it. I see it. David was actually writing about a greater betrayal. He was writing about a greater king. He was actually writing about King Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his own. And so that's why it says, may his camp become desolate and let there no one be to dwell in it. What happened to Judas? Matthew says, 
He went and he was grieved. He threw his money back and he went and hung himself. Luke says he bought a field and then his bowels gushed open. It's wild, right? What happened? What we think happened is, is sort of a, a hybrid. That Judas tried to go and give the money back. They would not take it. He went and hung himself. And perhaps the, where he hung himself is where the priest bought the field because that was not their money. It was his money. They wouldn't take it back. And maybe as he hung himself, the rope broke and he fell to the ground and burst it open. As you try to reconcile these two accounts. But Judas is no more. And if they're starting a new Israel, he got to get 12. And so did you notice what Peter says? We must find one who accompanied us. In verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11. They had the 12, and the Spirit is poured out right after that. A church is being birthed here. God is starting over with a new community, and he will fill them not with the breath of life, but with his spirit, and he will give them new life. Those old bones will live. The mission of the church is important, Acts chapter 2. Serving and advancing the mission of the church assumes that one is affiliated and part of church acts one this is jesus's way of saying god wants us to belong before we do the work of the church he wants us to be in loving community of others who know you before you go and make him known and there's an overlap luke 24 ends with the ascension and, and Acts 1 begins with the ascension. And when you put these two cases together, you start to see the shape of this body that, 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 that Luke 24 says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. But that's what Luke says. But Acts says, they went to the upper room and remained there. But well, which one is it? It's not an either or. It's a both and. They went to the temple together and they worshiped. And they went back to that upper room together. I would love to be a fly on the wall in that room. Can you imagine the conversation? Peter, what were you thinking? You pulled out a sword, bruh. You cut off his ear, man. And did y'all see Jesus put it back together? Peter, what were you thinking? You denied him and left him. And Peter's probably saying, hey, y'all did the same thing. Can you imagine? Judas isn't there. And that hurts. He was with them for three years. I'm sure it's mixed with grief. 
And did you notice how Luke tells us in Acts that it wasn't just the apostles, but the women were there? And not just the women, the Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it says, and his brothers. Y'all were the same dudes calling Jesus crazy. And now all of a sudden you're bowing the knee. What did it for you? When did you believe? Can you imagine the conversation in this room? They're knowing each other. They know each other's sin and weaknesses. And they're together. As you think about Redeemer and what you want for it and what you want for her, where does being tethered to this body fit? Do people here know you? Do they know when you're weak? Do they know what you wrestle with? Have you rejoiced together and cried together and dreamed together? You see, that's what Jesus does for them. Before he sends them out, he sends them to a people to belong and to be with. And it's the church. This was Jesus' model with the disciples. He didn't just put them on projects and say, go. He lingered with them. And he taught them. And he loved them. And he corrected them. And he rebuked them. And he equipped them. And he corrected them. I mean, just his model wasn't just work, 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 work you into the ground. It was to be energized and to be known in this community. Let us not omit that. The next thing we see in this text are are the beautiful and foundational practices of the church. We get a glimpse into life in the body. What did they do? What rhythms and practices shaped their lives? And this isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a window into the interior life of the church. If you've had children, then you are aware of milestones, the milestone of you bringing them home and they can take food outside of the womb for the first time. That's a milestone. And when they can see you and their eyes are not just kind of going everywhere, but they can kind of lock in on you and recognize your face, that's a milestone. And when they babble and speak their first words, it's a milestone. And when they can take their first steps, it's, it's a milestone. These things are important because you know they are the foundation of a healthy life. That as your child grows, their fine motor skills will be developed, and now they can go to the refrigerator and get their own snack. When their fine motor skills are fine-tuned, they can get in the car and button them and, and, and put their own seatbelts on, right? That when their fine motor skills are developed, they can do these things. When their sight is good, they can read. And, and, and when they can start to crawl and to walk, that, that these are the building blocks for them becoming independent. 
that what we're getting a window into in this passage is the building blocks of healthy life. And the first thing we notice is that they actually obey Jesus. He orders them not to depart from Jerusalem. And you know what they did when Jesus left? They went to Jerusalem. This sounds completely different from Adam. When God leaves, they wild out. Jesus leaves, they do what he says. They go back. You start to see that, that obedience in the body of Christ is important. They practice patience with Jesus. His command wasn't just not to depart from Jerusalem, but to go there and wait for the promise of the Father. How long did they wait? Luke tells us that Jesus tarried around for 40 days, that he appeared for 40 days. And in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happened, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover or Easter. And so we think that they're waiting eight to ten days. And here's the hard part about waiting, because in John, Jesus told them, it is to your advantage that I go away, because when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. I do not know if y'all have taken in what he says. He says something is better and it's coming, and it's better than my earthly, physical presence with you. And it's the coming of the Spirit. Can you, can you imagine what they're feeling having heard that? That something and someone better than what you've had is on the way? Can you imagine how their hearts feel hearing Jesus himself say that? I, I think I have a clue. So we were watching uh, some show, maybe the news. Yeah, it was the news. That's what it was. And one of the feature stories was an Eagle Scout. And this Eagle Scout has done his Eagle Scout project, which is this big deal to get your Eagle Scout badge. And his project was to create a hug machine for senior citizens in the nursing home. And I, I don't know, you hear machine and you think mechanical, that's not what it was. It's like PVC pipes in a big square with, with, some, with some legs on it to make it stand upright. And inside of the PVC frame, there's this, this semi-thin or sheet of plastic. And this sheet kind of went from the top to the bottom, left to the right. And there were a set of holes up top and a set of holes down bottom. And those holes had these things where you could... All right, here's the... Let me just get to the point. You're a senior citizen. And what senior citizens have admitted to is loneliness and the absence of physical touch and not being able to see and hug their grandchildren and their children. And they show person after person 
weeping. Because this Eagle Scout has brought this contraption where what they're able to do is to get face to face with their family member. And there's a thin sheet of plastic that separates them. So the virus is not transmitted. And the holes in there allows this grandmother to reach her hands through and to hug. And the holes on the bottom, they allow her grandchild to reach his hands through and hug. And when you, you watch them, you watch what it does. And, and she talks about how she has waited and waited and waited and waited. I have waited for this day. And the day has come. And what the nursing home has tried to do during that time is to stop the mind from, from fatiguing and to stop them from, from, from just getting weak. And, and, and their minds, they want to keep it sharp. So they have them playing bingo. They have them doing all these other things to occupy their time, to keep their faculties working. But what they really, really want and what they're really waiting for, that. And she's weeping. And she waited and she waited. Can you imagine what they feel like in this room? Waiting and waiting and waiting. And they do, they waited. And what did they do as they waited? They weren't playing bingo. They weren't doing all these other things that what, what, what Luke tells us is they persevered in united prayer unto Jesus. Luke says they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers. They were all on one accord. There were so many things that could potentially divide this group. You have the 12 apostles and the other 108 or so who were non-apostles. You have the earthly biological family of Christ in the room with these non-earthly biological family members. You have Mary who birthed Jesus. You have Peter, and his name is now at the beginning of the list, which means that he is some type of leader. All of these things could divide them and pull them, and yet Luke tells us they were of the same mind. What mattered not was their difference but their commonality. They loved Jesus and they missed Jesus and they wanted to talk to Jesus. They wanted to make their petitions known to their triune God. They cried out for help. If you look at our our, our, our God for worship, what is prayer? It is the pouring out of our hearts to God in praise. They're praising, they're petitioning, they're confessing, they're practicing thanksgiving. That they're being directed even by the word of God. That what they're doing there is communing with united minds and hearts unto the Lord. Even the casting of lots, which is the last time this happens in the New Testament. The Spirit comes and it seems like the casting of lots vanishes. 
But even the casting of lots, notice how that is bookended with prayer in verse 24. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of Judas's ministry. And they cast lots. And we think what they did was they probably wrote the name of Matthias on one stone and they wrote the name of Joseph on the other stone. They put him in a bag and they shook it up. And they pray because Acts, te- I mean, Proverbs 16 says the lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. But the impetus there is on the prayers that they make as they sought the Lord's wisdom and they cast these lots and the lot falls on Matthias. But it is a response to what their prayer. That what you're starting to see is that prayer and communing with God sharing our hearts with him, guided by the word, knowing his promises, being open and vulnerable and transparent and real and and, and asking for guidance and being confessional, like all of these things are shaping this body right here. And they're doing all of this as they meditated on scripture. The Holy Spirit will be poured out in a fuller measure in Acts 2. But did you notice the mention of the Holy Spirit right there in verse 16? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. That in this room, they're examining scripture and the Holy Spirit who carried people along to write it is still at work giving understanding and guiding. They are praying scripture and reflecting on scripture. And these practices don't just show up here. They'll show up throughout the entire book of Acts. Their obedience becomes more resolute. Here they obey and go to Jerusalem. Later in the book, they'll obey and travel across oceans and speak before rulers and endure persecution. Their patience will grow. Here they go from waiting to seven to ten days. And Paul is, when Acts end, Paul has to wait two years for his sentence. They go from being united in prayer with this 120 to continuing this practice as the church grows by thousands in the next chapter. And they, the 3,000, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and praying. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And here's the same thing. And day by day they went to the temple together, breaking bread, and they also did so in their homes. And they were praising God. They had favor with people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. The church in Acts did not jettison these disciplines for mission. These disciplines fueled their own lives and gave them durability, desire, and satisfaction in missions. The glorious mission of making Christ known, it truly begins with knowing, loving, praying, enjoying, and abiding with the Jesus that we want others to know. So how are you? Let's do an inventory. Are you tethered to the body? And I don't mean to a church building. 
Are you tethered to the body? Is the church, this new community that God has created, is it a priority for you? Are you undisciplined with your time? What does it look like? Are you, are we giving ourselves to growing in patience? Are we giving ourselves and making much of obedience? Are we giving ourselves in prayer to the Lord together? Are we giving ourselves God's word? May the Holy Spirit help us to see these two priorities. May we not omit what's important and before missions. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless your people? Father, we come and I know I admit how easy it is, Lord, to forget this new community, this beautiful spiritual community that you've placed us in. May we see it how you see it. Lord, as we're reminded that and it's so easy to waste time and to not redeem the day. We are a function of what we do and what we read. And so, Father, I pray that you will, by your grace and by your spirit, make prayer a priority, that you will cultivate patience in all of our hearts. You're a patient God with us. May we be patient with you as you do your work in our world. Father, help us to meditate upon your scriptures, to hide them in our hearts that we might not sin. Satisfy us with your word as a deer is satisfied with water. Would you do this, Lord, that we might be those who know you as we seek to make you known. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.